Welcome to the podcast where heavy industrial industries meet the venture capital ecosystem, interviewing both thought-leading investors and pioneering founders to better understand the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for digital industrial innovation. Your host is Ty Finley, and this is the Heavy Hitters Podcast. Brian Long Awe joins us today from New York. He's a founder and managing general partner of Refashion Ventures, the Industrial Transformation Fund, an emerging venture capital fund manager that invests in industrial transformation by backing early stage supply chain technology startups. Before launching Refashion Ventures, he joined KEC Holdings in 2008 to build an investment team for a family office that went on to launch KEC Ventures in 2011. Brian is also the founder of the Worldwide Supply Chain Federation and the New York Supply Chain Meetup that have both brought global communities together to discuss and address key supply chain topics impacting society. Some notable investments in the digital industrial ecosystem include ArcStone, Greenscreen AI, Leaf Logistics, Natural Fiber Welding, and Stimulus. Uh, Brian, it's great to have a longtime supply chain ally jump on the show today. So welcome to the heavy hitters. It's, it's great to be here, Ty. I'm looking forward to the conversation. It has been a while. <laughs> it's uh i'm trying to remember back to some of that amazing research that you were writing up long ago that, that got this all started in the in the trucking future space i think is what it was so it's it's been a fun it's been a fun journey to say the least but trucking trucking then my time and then later on i i discovered wait there's more than uh, logistics there's this whole supply chain thing that people That's, talk about so yeah. st- still trying to define it as we speak uh yeah well I always give a little snippet of your background, but, you know, let's get much more of that color commentary on your journey and what led you to founding Refashion Ventures. So I I think the key really starts at KEC Holdings and KEC Ventures, uh, which is how I got into venture in the first place. Before that, I worked in financial services, uh, mostly as a research analyst. So I think a theme through my career is being given uh, given a lot of responsibility, mostly to do research and analysis, and then to advise you know my boss on what on what what steps I think we needed to take. But at KEC, I got into venture. Um, let's say around 2015, 20 yes, because around 2015 I started to think about whether I wanted to remain a, a, a generalist or whether I wanted to become a specialist. And, and I started to lean towards becoming a specialist. And then the next question was, well, what would I specialize in? And the sorts of problems I like to solve, I studied math and physics in college, so problem solving is really, is really my jam. But I thought I want big problems. I want problems that are global in nature. I also want a problem that wouldn't would go away anytime soon, if ever. But I also want a problem since I'm in early stage venture. I want a problem where emerging technology can really make a big difference. If it's implemented the right way, it can really make a huge change. And that's what led me coincidentally to trucking. At the time, I was talking to a trucking startup from Canada that was developing an ELD platform. You might you might remember those days. Um, and so the more I talked to them, the more I realized this is really interesting. I didn't know anything about trucking at the time. So I taught myself about trucking and I was like, wow, this is a huge industry. It's fundamental to the economy. 
and it looks as if it isn't being served sufficiently by software innovation. But that's what led me to study trucking, to study maritime, then to studying supply chains more broadly speaking. And once I understood the scope of what supply chains are, it became clear to me that this is what I'm meant to be, this is what I'm meant to be doing. So I left KEC in 2018 and teamed up with Lisa, who's, who's my, my co-founder and partner at Refashioned, and we decided to build uh, Refashioned. The reason we're a good team is because when I met her in 2016, she was the first person that I knew who immediately recognized the way my mind was working and thinking about what is now our thesis. Awesome. Well, I think all the check boxes you mentioned earlier, massive problem, global impacts, and uh, you're going to be at it for a while. Uh, topic of the today, supply chain. So I think yep. we're going to have plenty plenty to go through here. And and maybe just a little bit more on refashion. Can you set us up um, a little foundation for the listeners, a little bit more high-level data points about refashion ventures generally in the fund mandate? Yeah. So our thesis is that we invest, just like you said, we invest in early stage startups refashioning uh, uh, supply chains. And the connection between industrial transformation and supply chains for us is fundamentally we believe you can't transform an industry if you do not first transform the industry's uh, supply chains, right? And at some point you go from transforming the supply chains to maybe transforming the entire uh, value chain. But you first start with the, with the supply chain. So that's the goal. And we think about our investments in, in four categories. The first is uh, data and decision analytics. Uh, some people will just call that data and AI. Um, the second is advanced materials. The third is advanced manufacturing. And then even though I made the quip earlier on that supply chain is more than just logistics, the truth is that logistics is the linchpin of what happens in supply chains. And so next generation logistics is the fourth, is the fourth category that we invest in. Um, we're just getting started building the fund. It's literally day one uh, uh, for us. So the fund is still small. We started with a rolling fund on angel list. We write small 25k checks. We've made 30, we've made 41 investments in 37 startups since July of 2021. So in two years, we've made 37. We, we, we've added 37 investments to the portfolio. Um, let me see. Is there anything else? Anything else interesting I can add? The team is two. It's two people. It's myself and Lisa. Um, so we're we're knee deep, uh, 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 elbow deep in work, as it were, uh, building the fund. No, right on. Well, uh, you know, you and I. I don't remember. We were the ones floating around some freight waves conferences back in 2016 or something yep. like that. So yep. to to say the yep. the least about bringing uh, bringing some punch to the syndicate partners. I know we're we would love to find something to work on together. So may, maybe yeah. Um, yeah. You, you gave some uh, color into the thesis. Let's go a little bit deeper on it too. And, you know, I'll use mm -hmm. some of uh, your and Lisa's language here. You call out that supply chain innovation is the foundation on which all sustainability initiatives must rest. And that, you know, in order to truly make all the progress in addressing climate changes, uh, climate change that we face as a society, we must, quote, refashion global man-made supply chains through scalable networks, platforms, ecosystem, and information infrastructure so that they can cause less harm to the environment. So all that build up. Take us through more of that overarching thesis behind the fund and maybe give us an example or two 
of how you're finding that connection you see between supply chain and climate and why you believe supply chain innovation will go a long way to advancing some of these climate-related goals? So fundamentally, we think climate change and supply chains are opposite sides of the same coin, right? The question is, what's leading to what's leading to climate change writ large and most scientists agree you'll find a few people who disagree but most scientists agree that human that human activity is leading to climate change now what are the systems that power and enable human activity supply chains right so if if we agree that human activity is is leading to climate change, then we also have to agree that the way we have designed our supply chains to enable and facilitate human activity is what is leading to, to climate change. So for example, if we agree that fossil fuels lead to global warming, right, then had we designed some other type of fuel that didn't have the, uh, the the emissions profile that fossil fuels have, right? What we would be seeing in the climate is different. Now, since I'm not being specific about what would have what could have been invented and how, uh, I'm not going to get into the weeds on on what the impact on the climate is like. But you see the point. You see the point I'm making, right? That different choices uh, at different points in history would have led us to different outcomes. And so our argument is, now that we know this, with all the advancements we've made in science, in technology, in engineering, uh, in how we develop our business models, in software innovation, how do we take all those things together and rethink how our supply chains work? I'll give you one example uh, of a startup in our portfolio that is emblematic of this idea, uh, uh, maybe two. So natural fiber welding is a startup that we invested in. And um, a lot of the things that we use contain plastic. And it is now being acknowledged, it is now clear. In fact, just this morning, I read an article talking about microplastics found in, um, in people's hearts. Um, microplastics are a problem. Right, they they clog our waterways. They're in our bloodstream. They've broken through the blood-brain uh, barrier. Uh, 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 microplastics have been found in people's uh, brains. Generally, the impact is not good. Generally, they're poisonous for the environment. They're poisonous for our bodies, and so on and, and so forth. So, what natural fiber welding says is, what if we could replace plastic? in all the various ways that it is used in our world today with an alternative that is derived from plants, knowing that plant matter is abundant, it can be regrown quite easily and so on and so forth. And so the team, after many years of work, has come up with alternatives to plastic that can be used in clothing, they can be used in footwear, uh, they've come up with leather alternatives that can be used in the automotive industry. They have a partnership uh, in progress with BMW, for example. Um, so that's one that's one one um, one case one case study, so to speak, of how we think our thesis plays out in the in the real world. 
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I know we both agree a lot on this topic of they're one in the same coin, like you said. Uh, I think there's a big marketing fiefdom going on of climate, sustainability, ESG, right? At the end of the day, I mean, you know, another one of your references, logistics is a linchpin amongst all this. I think I saw some Bureau of Transportation stat that said full truckload freight is responsible for like some 250 million metric tons of carbon emissions. We could all mm-hmm. agree, right? If they're doing less backhauling empty non-revenue loads, not only is that going to remove CO2 emissions, but certainly is going to be a great business case for that that trucking company, carrier, whoever it may be. So anyway, I, I uh, appreciate you, you, you laying it out because I think this marketing battle that's going on, we're all aimed at the same goal of using a more sustainable supply chain in some fashion. So the more we can promote it, the better. It's my opinion. So, so you're touching you're touching on a point that I often make, which is that you know impact investors, ESG focused investors, you know sustain, sustainable investors, uh, uh, climate climate tech investors. They're all supply chain investors in the closet. <laughs> they're, they're just closeted <laughs> supply chain investors. Now, 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 I do recognize, right? Not every climate tech innovation is a supply chain innovation because, for example, the the investments that like suck carbon dioxide out of the air and sequester it in the ground, right? Those, those, I don't think of those as supply chain uh, technology investments. But if you are, if let's say you you are investing in something that changes the way production happens, so that that production process, that industrial process, uh, emits less carbon dioxide, you are changing the supply chain, right? You're refashioning the supply chain in some sense. And so, to me, I'd, I'd say, well, you're a supply chain investor. You just, you just don't realize. You just don't realize this yet. All right. Well, the movement starts here, Brian. Sample size of two. We're we're both going to rally. Uh, I, I like it. Still your phrase here. Um, well, let me let me keep pushing us forward here. I'm going to stay on the supply chain topic a little bit of a different lens here, but. Let's go into what's kind of an interesting juxtaposition going on specifically within supply chain innovation investing right now. So a couple of data points here to to kind of frame this in. Earlier this year, a study of about 2,000 global executives by Capgemini found that 89% of company leaders see supply chain disruption as their biggest short-term risk for their organization, with about 43% of those organizations planning to increase investment in their supply chains over the next 12 to 18 months. So pretty, pretty near term. However, even though VCs poured, I think the stat was $5.6 billion into enterprise supply chain software startups in 2022, which was nearly a 120% increase from 2017, the most recent data pitch book put out from Q1 2023 says that the deal value in supply chain tech is down 45% quarter over quarter. The deal count volume itself is down 19%. And then if you finally look at it from a year-over-year perspective, it's down 82% with the deal volume year-over-year down 50%. So those are some pretty big swings here when we we talk relative bases there. So with the backdrop there, what are you seeing in the market aligned to this seemingly contradictory data? And, you know, if you're still finding great companies out there in the space, you know, spoiler alert, yes. What, what are those opportunities you're most bullish on? What's going on here, Brian? So I actually don't think this data is contradictory. It makes it makes a lot of sense to me. And it goes back to a point 
that I was trying to make before. I think when most people say supply chain, what they mean is logistics. And specifically, for most people, they mean trucking. Because remember, maritime is almost, it's, it's mostly invisible to the population, right? It's people like you and I. It's people like you and I who think about it all the time. Or when, you know, the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal, when something happens and the ship is grounded and, 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 and goods aren't moving, then the rest of the world thinks about maritime. But mostly people don't think about maritime. So I think when, you know, the pitch book data, and I've read some of their reports, and I know that they focus mostly on logistics. Um, I think I read the article in the Wall Street Journal, and they too were focused mostly on, on logistics. I think, though, the executives, right, the executives at Capgemini uh, 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 surveyed, they understand that within their organizations, the supply chain is an end-to-end -end phenomenon. It starts at the very beginning of the supply chain, way, way, way upstream, uh, with raw materials, sourcing those raw materials, processing the raw materials, warehousing them, distributing them, getting them to the company's uh, manufacturing sites. And then manufacturing takes place, right? And then once the goods are finished, getting those goods all the way to, into the hands of the, of the end uh, customer. And of course, I've simplified this dramatically. Uh, the, the reality is way, way, way more complex. And so it would make sense that the executives are thinking about this and realizing that they have to make more investments and in innovation to enable the flow of information and the flow of goods and that system, that network, that ecosystem that I just described. On the other hand, with investors who are only thinking logistics and even in logistics, probably some sliver of what logistics truly is, Mm -hmm. It makes sense that they would feel as if, oh, my God, this is an area that has been overinvested in. We're starting to see the same things over and over again. So it makes sense that they would retreat and, and be deploying less capital. Um, but like I said, if you think about the four, the four categories that we focus on, there is plenty, there is plenty opportunity. There is plenty that still needs to happen in advanced manufacturing. There is plenty that still needs to happen in advanced materials. There's a lot, there's a lot of interesting work that can still be done in next generation logistics. And when you think about all the opportunity for, for gathering data, collecting information, processing it, making sense of it and helping people to make decisions in real time, not two days from when something happens, but make decisions in real time. There's still a lot of, there's still a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. And I think you nailed it, Brian, because you really do have to peel back what is in that data, right? We're both supply chain nerds, but you know, you tell yeah. me if you feel differently. I feel like a lot of those numbers are pumped up specifically when it came to VCs rushed in and, you know, it's not neither here nor there, good, bad business model, but basically to subsidize freight, uh, freight brokerage matching, right? Which is already yeah. a very yeah. low gross margin yeah. business. And so whenever, whenever the economy turns and the idea of subsidizing freight matching brokerage, well, that was a heck of a lot of those big bar charts in that pitch book data when the word supply yeah. chain is much broader to your point. So again, there's nuance, yeah. but yeah. it really, really matters. And I'm glad we can help try to set some of that narrative straight. So but I don't know. Tell yeah, me if you think I'm, I'm off. 
No, 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 you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Another example is all the money that was thrown into the last mile, the last mile delivery, the last mile delivery companies, right? Um, uh, uh, that's another example of, of what you just described. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. There's a right way and a wrong way to do um, all of the things we just mentioned, but um, subsidizing is definitely a factor in the big uh the big drop off in funding. But to your point of like yeah. real time data enabling better decisions, I know the, the the last part of that question was really what what are like one or two really interesting opportunities or themes you're seeing uh, still a lot of investment get plowed into? I'm curious, anything come out uh, or top of, top of mind? Uh, you, you know, so in one investment we made that I think is emblematic of how we think about things is in a startup called Green Screens. Uh, you may have heard about them. And in the trucking business specifically, and, and of course, it's, I'm going to say, oh my God, everyone is investing in twin software for trucking, but then the example, <laughs> the example I did. Hey, but nuance <laughs> matters, right? So. Isn't, isn't that ironic? But, but, but what Green Screens does is they've developed a, um, a dynamic pricing uh, platform for the trucking industry. And this, is, this did not exist before, right? In, in airlines, there's dynamic pricing, right? In hotels, there's dynamic pricing. In trucking, why wouldn't you have something that is similar? The thing that is unique about Green Screens is that not only is it dynamic pricing, but the pricing is personalized and customized for each customer, right? So customized means at the company level, the system works specific to your company. Personalized means for Ty specifically and the deals that he is working on, the system is personalized to optimize his effectiveness. And we think that's something, we think that's, something that's unique, right? So one, dynamic pricing, to the customization, 3D personalization. And then one thing that uh, I'm trying to help them to figure out, but the team is busy and I don't want to distract them from the things they're focused on right now, is um, when, they, when they engage with a new customer before they can get the customer up and running, they spend a lot of time cleaning data, scrubbing it as as we used to say when I was uh, uh, in the actuarial business, scrubbing it, normalizing it, and that sort of thing. And I'd like to get them to a point where that can happen almost instantaneously. Almost yep. instantaneously, a new customer comes on board, you flip a switch, there's a system that does all that really quickly, and you can be up and running and, and seeing value in a matter of days. Because I think for 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 products like like that, the idea that a new customer comes in and it's two or three weeks before they start seeing value to me that doesn't to me that doesn't make a lot of sense. But the innovations, the the innovations are not uh, widespread enough yet to to make what I described possible. Right on. Well, very aligned with your your one of your four pillars around data and actionability. I couldn't agree more. And you linked up with Ben Gordon on that one. I think it reminds me to get Ben on the show. He'd be another good freight yes. freight ally to put on the show, right? So. Yes. Uh, yes. When 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 we get to people to to bring on the show, Ben is definitely someone that we should have on the show. Right on. 
Well, well, maybe a final question here. I want to talk about another piece of research uh, that Refashion put out that was entitled uh, Half Dozen Rules for Investing in Early Stage Supply Chain Technology. And I'll certainly link this in the show notes so everyone can find it. It's a great read amongst a lot of other great research you guys have put out, but where you really lay out a, a helpful framework for both founders so they can better understand how you'll be evaluating their businesses and also other investors, you know, to some of this discussion, help them ramp up the curve on some of the nuances involved in investing in the sector, because there are a lot. And it's a it's a pretty right. small ecosystem when you really, really get into it, uh, relatively speaking, for as big the GDP is. But so this would be great education for audience. Can you walk us through, you know, somewhat of the short form, because it's 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 really well laid out there, but an overview <laughs> of those six rules and, you know. If there's been any shift in those rules since you initially wrote it, given there has been a lot of market recalibration, but I would love to share that with the audience. So I'll start with the easy one first. Has there been a shift? There hasn't been a shift because, Kai, as you might as you might have recognized, the rules are maybe something that one can describe as principles, more so rules. And the reason I, I, I like to think in terms of principles is those don't change, right? Valuations might change given the macro environment and whatnot. But the idea that you should do your homework does not change, right? It doesn't matter what, what the valuations are, you should still do your homework. And, and, and so broadly speaking, it was our attempt to lay out for some of the people that we co-invest with, and, and just more broadly speaking, how we go about thinking through an investment. And the six rules. So first, I think what is a startup is what we begin with. Uh, defining what a startup is clearly, I find to be very useful. Because as you know, Ty, the things that we invest in and the things that I think many customers of the startups we invest in have in mind are two different things, right? At the early stage, a startup is still performing experiments, uh, still trying to, fig to figure out the optimal uh, solution to the problem that they're solving for their customers. And then once they've done that, start to scale. So I think that's important for uh, people in the audience who might be looking for innovation to understand because it affects how someone that's at the company should engage with startups. Um, so, so that's the first thing. The six rules, I'll go through them uh, quickly. Uh, uh, we delve into more detail in the piece. Doing one's homework as an investor is absolutely critical. Um, what I would say for founders who might be listening uh, and are building supply chain technology or industrial transformation uh, startups, uh, doing homework on the customer is really, really important. Um, thinking in broad categories, we spoke earlier about the the um, the contradiction, the juxtaposition of executives are going to be investing more, but investors seem to be pulling back from supply chain. And we we seem to agree that this might be because investors are thinking narrowly about the opportunity. So thinking in broad categories, the four I mentioned, we, we focus on as a, as, a, as a useful place to start. Um, then I think one rule that might not be obvious to many other people is figuring out what form of innovation is most likely to succeed for the specific 
problem that the startup is solving or the specific area that the investor is looking at. So we think in terms of two types of innovation. There's the innovation that is a sell-side innovation, and very quickly, a sell-side innovation means some amazing engineer uh, has an insight about how to solve a problem that is not widely understood by anyone else. And so they get to work, they solve the problem, they build their startup, they're successful. This, this can create a discontinuity in the market, right? The problem was being solved one way before, but if the startup is successful, it will be solved in a completely uh, different way. So that starts with the startup or the founder, the technologist, the, the innovator having a, an idea. The other approach is buy-side innovation. And buy-side innovation starts with a focus on what the customers need and solving the problem from that perspective. So a lot of the time, buy-side innovations seem more like incremental improvements. And over time, those, those incremental improvements add up to something big. But it's important as an investor, I think, to understand what is going to work for the specific area that you are that you are looking at, and that's something we spend a lot of time on. The fourth is the team structure. Um, I think sometimes in supply chain, what can happen is, and in in, in industrial transformation too, what can happen is that VCs, especially generalist VCs, can underestimate how difficult the problems are. Right, and I'll give a simple example. It's like Oh, wait, if this process has been a pen and paper process and we're digitizing it, how difficult can that be? <laughs> well, it turns out it turns out it can be very difficult because yes, it might look like it's just a pen and paper process, but the process could have so many steps and so many dependencies. Um, uh, and, and, there, and there can be things that are hidden from the naked eye or from an outsider that have to happen before what looks like a, a primitive pen and paper process can be digitized. So identifying what team structure is most likely to succeed based on doing one's homework and understanding the problem is critical. In some cases, you know, the core founding team has to be very technical. In other cases, maybe you can have a core founding team that's not so technical. So that's what that that's what that's getting at. And then number five is identifying invisible barriers to adoption and how those might be overcome. So an invisible barrier to adoption, and I think this happens a lot, especially in maritime, and it's one of the reasons why I'm not spending as much time on maritime as I used to, is just things that are going to prevent a shipping company from adopting a new technology from an early stage of, of startup. One of those things can be issues related to the product that as great as the product might seem from the perspective of the startup founder, it doesn't quite work in the way it has to for a shipping company to adopt it. Um, it can be issues related to the customer. And one of the things I realized back in 2015 and 2016 in talking to startup founders is that often they couldn't figure out who their primary customer is, uh, who exactly is going to be using the product who's going to be paying for it, and how do you navigate that process to get to the primary uh, customer. And then it could also be something to do with sales. 
right? Different industries have different ways that the sales process works. And I think it's important to understand that for each industry. And then even uh, 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 specific to the function, right? The way you sell to technology in an industry might be very different from the way you sell to the operations and supply chain organization. So understanding that is just as critical. Because as you know, Ty, it's not always the best technology that wins. If you can't get the industry to adopt your product, if you can't figure out who the customer is and sell to them in a way that is effective, your 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 great technology is likely is likely to um to go nowhere. And then the last the last one, the fifth rule is about economic modes. I know there are some people who think that economic modes don't matter um, at the early stage. I disagree. I I think it's not that at the early stage at pre-seed and seed and even series A, it's not that the, the economic modes need to exist, but it is that there's a potential for them to develop as time unfolds if the startup is successful. And the reason that's so important is if there are if there is no potential for a startup to develop economic modes, then it's going to fail. It's it's going to fail at some point. And I was reminded of this just yesterday. I saw a story that said Hopin had raised a billion dollars and sold for fifteen million dollars. That's the sort of thing that can happen where when there is no potential for deep economic modes to to develop over time. So that's a quick that's a quick rundown of the um, of the six rules. If there's anything you want me to go into into more detail on, I'm happy. No, to I it. I loved how you framed it's principles. Right, rules sound like rigid, yeah. but they are truly yeah. guiding principles. And and you know I won't even try to that we could have a whole podcast about you know two of them. But I, I really really do appreciate what you said about technology. Yes, technology is a great enabler, but from my years of doing this, which what, what do I have figured out? Technology has never been the problem. It's actually understanding what the buyer needs to solve some specific customer yeah. pain point. And is there an ROI based on how much I'm going to pay you for that software versus what you're going to deliver for me? And that sounds very simple, yeah. but you know, every yeah. time we, you know, the venture eyeballs chase crypto or gen AI or what, whatever it is, they're all great enablers, however you want to define them, but I couldn't be with you more. It's, um, it just wraps into those six principles, and and so I'll I'll definitely put it in the show notes because I'm sure people want to dive in more. But um, try to try to push us forward here, and and you know what I'd love to do is Brian, we always bring this back to the founders at some point in the show, and so you know as those that are thinking about raising in the midst of everything going on or or engaging with refashion ventures, you know give them some advice, and we always like to split it, you know a quick hitter on you know one key to success as they enter the chat, and one one maybe common pitfall to avoid when they kick off the discussion. I would say to focus on who the customer is. Too many times we get we we have a call with the founder and it quickly becomes clear that they're more focused on their innovation and their technology and not focused enough on going to be on the problem that they're solving for the customer. And then I think a a pitfall to avoid um, is uh Communication is really, really key. I personally pay attention a lot to communication. So are you communicating with me in a way that is straightforward and that I can understand? Because I'm then thinking about how you communicate to your potential customer. 
how you communicate to investors who have no background in, in supply chain, right? Can you quickly get them to understand uh, what you're doing, why you're doing it, and why your customers care that you're, you're, you're doing it? So I would say those two. Uh, uh, a focus on the customer and then a focus on communicating clearly. Now, this does not mean that the other things don't matter. The other things matter a lot. But if, if you miss the mark on these two, <laughs> if you miss the mark on those two, I'm not going to get to the point where I'm thinking about if economic modes are going to develop in five years or ten years, right? I'm not, I'm not even going to get that far. Not getting to rule six with Brian, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> right. I like it. I like it a lot. It's good advice. And uh, so we, you know, we wrap up the show with some some quick hitter Q and A. So if you're ready, we'll jump right into that as well. Yep. yep. All right. What is the number one thing you're looking for? And you can only pick one. Uh, lots of things involved, but number one thing you're you're looking at when you're evaluating a founder within the ecosystem. So I like to I like to see if this founder can build credibility with potential customers, and if they're the kind of founder that other people will want to work for, and therefore if they're the kind of founder that other that other investors will want to back. It's a very, it's a very nebulous thing, but that's one of the things that I try to look for in the very beginning. Right on. Well, links back to your communication comment too. So uh, yeah. consistent to say yeah. the least. Yeah. Um, what's a resource? Could be a book, podcast, blog you'd recommend to our audience to follow in this ecosystem. This is this is a tough one um, because it's been a long time since I read a book from cover to cover. Usually, what I do is I have a question on my mind. And then I might read a chapter here, an article there, a page there, in order to develop the, the answer. So that's a tough one. Um, you know, but anything that I think talks about uh, supply chains and technology, industrial transformation, um, those are things that I would that I would recommend. Um, and you know, for founders who are trying to understand how VCs think. I think there are some classics. So um, uh, Bill Gurley's blog is a great one. I think Fred Wilson's blog is, is a great one. But I'm assuming that if someone is a founder and in the ecosystem, that those are things that they'll find from other places. That, that's an un, unsatisfying answer, I know. But <laughs> that's, okay. that's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> All right, fair enough, confidently. I like it. Uh, who's one person who should be on this show to help us build the ecosystem further? So this is where I make up for blundering on the previous question. Uh, you should have Ben Gordon on, and you should have Warren Powell on. Uh, and if you want me to make an intro to Warren Powell, I can, I can do that. Absolutely. I don't think our audience knows. Uh, I know I mentioned Ben earlier, but mind give a little quick preface on both of them. Yes. So Ben is uh, considered by some to be the best. Uh, or definitely one of the best uh, growth stage uh, logistics technology investors in the country. Uh, he runs a firm called Cambridge Cambridge Capital. And Warren Powell is a professor emeritus at Princeton University. He's now, uh, I think, chief scientific officer at Optimal Dynamics. Optimal Dynamics is a startup I wish we had in our portfolio. Um, and he has spent more time than anyone else I know studying the application of decision analytics 
in industrial uh, um, in industrial in environment. So most of his work has focused on logistics, but he's also done work on energy. He's also done work on healthcare. Uh, I think he's done work for the military. He did a lot of work for Yellow, which just declared a, a bankruptcy. It was a bittersweet moment for him. Uh, so I think he'd be a great person to have. Uh, he, he can definitely talk a lot about the intersection between uh, uh, industrial uh, systems and decision-making using data, of course. Right on. And then finally, Brian, the best way for folks to reach out to you after the show. I am easy to find online. Uh, my last name is spelled A-O-A-E-H. Uh, you know, LinkedIn is fine. Uh, email is fine. Twitter is fine. Um, uh, I'm, I'm on different social media uh, platforms, and I try to be responsive when I can. Awesome. Well, we got plenty of opportunity to help drive even more sustainability into the supply chain and all the other things we covered today, Brian. So look forward to working with you even more. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you, Sides. Uh, this was a lot of fun.